thank you very much for this introduction, and thank you very much for inviting me to this, uh, to this conference. Uh, and uh, first, I would like to apologize. Uh, uh, please excuse my, my coughing. And uh, if you start coughing yourself tomorrow, blame Professor Smola. first to make it. Um, you have seen uh, some uh, film footage, some pictures of this least spectacular revolution of all times, which we had 25 years ago. And indeed, uh, uh, that will maybe be an asset. Uh, and despite this lack of spectacularity, I still love it. Not only because it made me a free man, which I had not been before 1989. I couldn't leave the country if I wanted. Uh, but also, uh, I like it as a historian. I like it, I love it, because it's so messy. It's been so circumstantial, so contingent. Uh, messy indeed. It's very difficult to put it into a coherent, highly theorized narrative. But I will try nevertheless. <coughs> uh, I have heard the Different interpretations of 1989 in Poland, mostly result from attempts to reinterpret today, to change legitimacy or to delegitimize some aspects of the present. But I would like to stay in my historian's head and think about the, the, the revolution it was of 1989 as a tool to understand the years before, not to shed light on the present of Poland or the present of Ukraine, but to understand a little bit more the communist regime. For me, what happened between the summer of 1988 and the summer of 1989, because it was a longer process, which ended sometime in the summer, was not the beginning of a new free market democratic Poland future member of the EU and NATO, which were unexpected <coughs> at the time, and it would be strongly a historical thing in the steps, and in fact, no one fought in the steps. No one planned, no one expected, everyone was surprised. Even the victors, the victors were actually more surprised than the losers. But as a stage in the history of the People's Republic of Poland, the PRL, uh, the final stage, as we know it today, but nobody knew it at the time. So a stage is something, is a part of a process. And I would like to have this processual perspective on this history. And we have a process between the summer of 1988 when the Communist Party leaders decided to negotiate. That means decided to make a radical turn in their policies because for the past seven years, beginning with the martial law in December 1981, they did the opposite. <coughs> they, were, they kept arresting opposition leaders and up to 1986-1987 when a policeman could notice and could recognize a member of the opposition he had a very simple answer what to do, arrest him. And in the late 1980s, with this first timid steps towards inventing a way outside of the trap, which the party went in by the policies of the martial law, and then radical decisions to recognize the opposition as such. In Polish, the term opposition, I think, had at that time a different meaning than in this country, because in this country we have Her Majesty opposition. <coughs> In Poland, opposition meant something illegal, which, is, which cannot be present in the public space. If it's present, it's just temporary before the police arrives. So the party leader's decision in the summer of 1988 to start talking to this man was a, was a radical choice. And that was a step in a longer process, which I will try to now offer you just to put some order into this messy story this contingent, circumstantial story of the 
Polish Revolution. So what, what is my framework? Uh, what happened between the summer of 1988 and the summer of 1989 was the final decomposition. Well, the, we know today it was final. At that time, it was just the composition of a feature of the communist regimes, whatever they were or they are, the monocentric system. A system where every organization, in the final result, reports to the Politburo. Or, to put it from the other end, I have researched the, the finances of the Communist Party. The Communist Party was the only organization in Poland, or in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Soviet Union, which approved its own budget. Every other organization, be it a state-owned company, uh, uh, a youth association, or a trade union, had its budget approved by the party. So that was the only one. That was the center of the decision-making. And what happened between the moment when the parties decide to talk to the people like Geremek or Masowiecki, or some other deputies of the opposition. That means they recognize there is a place for them outside of prison. To this moment, Wałęsa was a private, ostensibly a private person, citizen Wałęsa, no, uh, ex-chairman of the ex-trade union, which had existed a long time ago, but a matter of the past. So this is, for me, the key feature of the process from the point of view of the history of, of Communist Poland and the Communist Party, how it decomposed as the center of the regime. Well, the regime is much more than the political system. It's a social order. <coughs> it's the set of institutions, practices, how things happen. How do you buy bread, where do you work, what you can watch on TV, what you can write and read in public. And here, I'm very glad to use a, a framework provided by Juan Linz, who revised an old totalitarian regime theory, and he reduced it just to three elements in the syndrome. One was, number one was monocentric system. He calls it monistic center of power. Second was coherent, coherent and exclusive ideology, kind of a gnosis, which offers salvation and explains everything, and motivates and guides. And the third component was a tendency, a desire, and capacity for mass political mobilization. And the combination of the three was, was something that distinguishes communist dictatorships from other dictatorships. Uh, Franco's Spain in the 1960s and 70s didn't want to have an ideology for everyone or to mobilize the population. Usually dictators want the citizens or subjects to stay away from politics. The communists, like the fascists, wanted to mobilize them. So when you take into account these three features, what we see, that the communist regime in Poland gradually lost them. And the final stage was losing the monocentric order of the society, economy, and political system. And this happened sometime between summer of 1980, as Professor Smolar mentioned, when an alternative, separate, independent force emerged. But that was suppressed. Solidarity was effectively suppressed with the martial law in 1981-1982. Two other components, the, the ideology, the gnosis, political gnosis, and the capacity and the will to mobilize, the regime lost earlier. The first victim of the evolution of the communist regime was the ideology, which in Poland was effectively dead after 1968. Uh, I spent 25 years of my life in communist Poland, but the first communist believer I met was in New York at the New School. 
And I was really very glad to meet such person. <laughs> it was a great experience for me as a historian because I wanted to understand the comments and I could not make them talk. The comments believe. So the ideology was dead as a motivating force and as something which can explain everything and promise salvation in the future, secular salvation. So it was dead, of course, there was uh, the dead language of Marxism. And of course, relics remain because people who were trained to perceive the world in some categories, kept perceiving the world in some categories, but uh, there was nothing like empty rituals. So there were some Marxist-Leninist rituals, but actually it was no longer the binding force. And it was also no longer a language to distinguish between those who are in and those who are out. There were no communists, there were just party members, as Professor Smoller mentioned. The capacity for mass political mobilization and the willingness of the party leaders to mobilize ended effectively in 1980 because they realized there is someone else who is much better in mass political mobilization. The martial law, what General Jaruzelski did in the 1980s, since December 13, 1981, was the great exercise in demobilization. He did his best, and the party did his best, to politically demobilize the Poles. And in this sense, the regime of Jaruzelski in the 1980s is a post-communist authoritarian regime. They want to demobilize the people because they know solidarity is much better in mobilization. And they did it. And actually, we think today, what are the causes of civic passivity of Poles and the very limited trust in the government? We should look back into the 1980s. How the government, using extensive violence, was grooming people into passivity, especially refraining from taking a political position in, in the public. And. Uh, Yaruzelski, well, the, the martial law was a very good coup d'etat. It was very effective. We, we, we must give justice to him. However, it came as a prize. Yaruzelski saved the party rule, which is the monocentric system in Poland. But the party paid the price. Namely, it was no longer the rule of the Politburo. It was the rule of Yaruzelski personally. The key decisions were made by him and his closest associates. And the Politburo was just rubber stamping the decisions. And that was, I would say, maybe not the mortal blow, but it changed the nature of the system. It was not the system which Lenin and especially Stalin built 80 years before. It was something different, which, of course, was useful when you have to make fast decisions, suppress, and so on, in extraordinary circumstances. But the fact that the Soviets wanted and approved a general as the head of the party, that was most unusual. He was not a party member. He, didn't, he had not made career as an apparatchik. He was a man from outside. And actually, initially, party apparatchiks didn't like him very much. He brought a number of generals into the state administration, to the party administration. And this way, the role of the party maybe was not marginalized, but it was no longer the center. Jaruzel, the body of General Jaruzelski was the center of this monocentric system, no longer a Politburo, which <coughs> made possible the events of the 1988-89. Because when Jaruzelski and his colleagues in the Politburo <coughs> in late November and December 1988 <coughs> reached the point that they may accept solidarity, legal again, which they had not 
thought possible just a few weeks before, when they started negotiations, they had a very clear plan not to accept solidarity again as a massive trade union or to accept it in some distant unspecified future. They were ready to open the process, make the opposition into responsibility for the state and for the economy, but not to accept it. And because of some contingency, a silly, overambitious <coughs> thinking by a legal trade union leader, comrade Miodovich, who thought he's smart enough and he's a good trade union leader, and he will outdo Valenza in public. And he invited Valenza for a public debate. So only under stretched circumstances. No one planned it. It was an obvious mistake, but partly leaders understood it was a mistake only afterwards. And then they realized that Valenza was not legal. He was an extremist. And they decided, yes, why not to accept the solidarity? And they had a very strange way of thinking. I wanted to find out some time ago what was the mental horizon at that time. And I found it. Uh, one of the Politburo members said at that time, yes, you know, in 1956, we have accepted the Catholic Church, which in the early 1950s was to be to disappear or completely controlled by the party and the security. We accepted it was a pain in the ass. But at this moment, it stabilizes the country. Maybe we can have solidarity, something. We can have the opposition, like the Roman Catholic Church in Poland. Relatively autonomous, but contained. And taking blame for the cost of economic reforms. That was the mental horizon. They made a decision, and that it was too late to revoke. And we have a whole series of decisions. But before they declared they accepted solidarity, they called the Central Committee plenary session. And at the Central Committee plenary session, Jaruzelski met with the vocal opposition by the old apparatchiks, who understood it probably much better than him, that they are going approaching a disaster with this. And then Jaruzelski personally threatened <coughs> with his resignation, and his former associate did the same. And only under pressure of Jaruzelski and a few friends of him did the Central Committee accept the decision. Otherwise, it was very unlikely. So, from the party point of view, Jaruzelski saved it during the martial law, but the center of power relocated into his body from the collective body in Poland. And then the body of Jaruzelski guaranteed the party approval for this dramatic decision to reverse all the policy of the 1980s. Because the party policy since the martial law in 1981 was never again solidarity. So they made this dramatic turn, maybe not a U-turn, but a dramatic turn, and this greatly contributed to what we know was the final collapse. Because what was the result? That was the most dramatic decision, but there was many others, such as that Politburo members talk to oppositionists, now, who were non-persons just a few months before. These decisions made by the party leaders, publicly announced and seen on TV, created confusion. Among still loyal party members, among the party apparatchiks, among the security officers. So what's the line? What is the future? If something we fought for, we risk our authority, our neighbors don't like us, maybe our children don't like us, for something which we are now going to abandon. So, so what's the future? So it started with confusion, followed by demobilization, and eventually demoralization. <coughs> At the end, a bank run 
to steal as many moral and material assets from the regime as possible in the summer of 1989. So this is a kind of a short story of it. However, when we look at this messy events by many people in the fall 1988 and summer 1989, why they are messy? Because there are a growing number of relatively independent actors. Comrade Miodovic, the head of the legal trade unions that were invented to replace, to substitute for solidarity in, during, during the Marshall. He was a Politburo member, he was a party member, but he behaved independently. In fact, he was found terrible of the roundtable <coughs> negotiations among the, the party representation because he demanded things he had not consulted with the Politburo. At one crucial moment, he almost completely destroyed the negotiations because he demanded to speak as the third person in the final meeting of the Montaigne. And no one could convince him. Why? Because he wanted to appear as independent. And in this sense, he was effective because the trade union he was leading at the time survived the party and is now bigger than solidarity. So he was effective in saving the trade union and himself, but equally effective in destroying the monocentric system. Because if he can oppose the Politburo to some extent, but much greater than anyone could imagine in the past, why not the others? And we have plenty of reports in spring and especially summer of 1989 that bureaucrats, state administrators, economic <coughs> administrators, uh, trade union leaders, uh, the satellite party, because Poland didn't have a monoparty system, it had a hegemonic system with two small satellite puppet parties united with the Communist Party, that they are increasingly assertive. And they start behaving as if they were independent. Well, that was exactly what Jacek Kuron advised to the Poles in the 1970s. Behave as you were, as if you were free. Of course, all of them had been appointed with the approval of the, of the Communist Party. But in the period of confusion, they started to behave, at least some of them, as if they had been not. And by this fact, they eroded the part of the point when party leaders could threaten opposition with a potential backlash of some hardliners. But they were no longer these hardliners capable of any organized action. And now, because I think I have just a few minutes to add, let me add an anecdote. I'm a little bit younger than, than, than other speakers today, and I didn't have a hindsight they had. But I think I'm a, a, a unique person in this room who, 1989, uh, had the privilege of proudly standing on guard of socialism in a uniform of a Warsaw Pact army. I was drafted to the army at the end of 1988. So in June, during the elections, I happened to be in, in the Polish army, in Polish People's Army at the time. <coughs> uh, and I could watch this institution from within. And there are two moments which gave me a knowledge which Bronisław Gerenek did. One was in February 1989, in a forgotten garrison town in northern Poland. Every week on Monday morning, we had a, a, a hate hour, a meeting with all the political officer. There was a battalion political officer. And at the beginning of my service, <coughs> it was a standard political indoctrination. But I remember this day when he came. He was a graduate of the Felix Dzierżyński Political Academy. Can you imagine? <laughs> and he came to the room, and there were hundreds of us, a company of men. And he said, oh, you know, soldiers? Maybe multi-party democracy is not a bad idea. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. 
He was a political officer, a graduate of the Felix Dzerzhinsky Academy. Could you imagine what Felix Dzerzhinsky could feel at that moment? <laughs> and the second moment is two days before the June 4th elections, and I was in a different garrison, and I was assistant to the company commander. And we have, uh, in Poland, uh, the military vote in separate polling stations. There are polling stations within the barracks. So, of course, during the electoral campaign, some party candidates were coming and we have proper posters uh, encouraging everyone to vote for the party <coughs> candidates. Uh, but two days before the elections, on the morning roll call, I was standing with the Eloitment, who was the company commander, in front of these hundred men, uh, boys, most of them didn't have elementary education, actually. It was not the elite troop. The and at the end of the roll call, he said, uh, you know, soldiers, in two days we are about to have elections, and this is an important moment, and Stola will tell you something about it. And he left. <laughs> he didn't dismiss the roll call. And he gave me five seconds to invent what I can tell these guys. A hundred of 19-year-old peasant sons from Eastern Poland were standing in front of me. And I had five seconds to invent what to tell them in five minutes in this crucial moment. And I don't remember what I told them. <laughs> uh, and I don't know how effective it was. But I know that the day after the elections, the first thing I did, I ran to the polling station and read the protocol and realized that Solidarity won all the seats it could win in this electoral committee. And I realized that most of the soldiers voted for Solidarity. But I didn't grasp the meaning. I was so happy until lunch. And only when eating the horrible military food you can imagine from this army, I realized what was the meaning. The meaning was the military option was no longer. Because the army voted, and the soldiers knew how they voted, and the officers knew how the soldiers voted. Geremek didn't know. By me, a 25-year-old soldier of the Polish People's Army, I realized that General Jozelski cannot use the army as he had used in 1981. Because something happened. And all of these 19-year-old peasant sons in green uniforms knew it. I don't know if that was a consequence of my five-minute speech. But I know that the decision of the Leutnant, a career officer of the Communist Army, who took a risk because he knew what I may be talking about in these five minutes. And he left, which was a message for me, do what you wish, I don't listen. Why he took a risk? For me, this is a, an example of this decomposition. If such thing could happen in a communist army when a political officer considers the positives of the multi-party democracy, and the young lawyer allows me to make an anti-party subversive activity in the garrison. This regime was about to die. Thank you very much.